Well, good morning, Gateway. How's everybody this morning? Doing well? Beautiful day outside. It's a great day to be here. I'm glad to be with you, although I'm sorry about the circumstances, and we want to continue to remember Jed and his recovery. Uh, remember him in your prayers as well as his family, and hopefully he'll be back here in front of you real soon. So who's had a good week? Who's had a bad week? It's okay if you've had a bad week. You know what? If you've had a bad week or a good week, you're here. You made it, right? And God brought you here for a purpose. So let's just try as best we can to put everything out of our minds we've been struggling with this week. And let's dig into God's Word. Let's see what He wants to teach us today in His message. We're in message number four of our 10-week sermon series based off of the Sermon on the Mount. That's a sermon preached by Jesus that's recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And I think it's the greatest sermon there's ever been because you're not going to get a better preacher than Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so in this, in this sermon, Jesus challenges us with so many things. He challenges us, above all, though, to live radical lives, lives that are different than we see in the world. He challenges us to live differently than our culture, right? We know that if we choose Jesus, we choose to live a life different than the world in the way that we speak, the ways that we act, the people we hang out with. Our lives are going to look different when we choose Jesus, than we see in the world. And the last time we met, we talked about righteousness. That's what Jesus talked about. Jesus had told the crowd, if you remember, he said, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament law, but I came to fulfill it. And he says in Matthew 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And remember, the Pharisees were the teachers of the day, right? People looked up to them as their spiritual leaders. And even Jesus acknowledged this. And he said, you need to listen to them, but you need to be careful. Because they do not practice what they preach. You see, the Pharisees gave all their attention to the details of the law. And they were busy making sure that outwardly they looked obedient. But Jesus says that is not enough to be found righteous in the eyes of God. It wouldn't be enough to get him into heaven. Merely knowing God's commands doesn't get you and I into heaven either. You see, it's one thing to know God's word, but it's another thing altogether to know the God who gave the word. Amen? Amen. Amen. Righteousness, as Jesus says, and as we see in Paul's writings, doesn't come from knowledge of God's word, but it comes from a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So we were left last time with the question, what about the old law? What about the Old Testament? Does it still apply? Aren't we a New Testament church? Do we still follow the old laws? How do we do this? And that's what Jesus is about to explain in the next part of the Sermon on the Mount we're going to cover today. And for each of these topics he addresses, and there's some heavy topics but for each of these topics, he starts off by saying, you have heard that it was said. And to the original hearers of this sermon, they would have heard all these topics Jesus is talking about. They would have, been, they would have grown up with them in their Jewish education, in their background, in their studies. So we've titled today's sermon, What They Said, because that's what we're going to look at. But before we get into our text, I want to go back and talk a little bit about the Old Testament law. You see, there are three main categories of law that we find in the Old Testament. 
First, you see ceremonial laws. Secondly, you see dietary laws. And thirdly, we see moral laws. And they're either ceremony, ceremonial, dietary, or moral. And just to get it out of the way, let me tell you this. We do not believe that the ceremonial or dietary laws are still binding on us today. And we certainly don't practice them. But the moral law is still in effect today, and it is still binding because these are timeless reflections of God's character. So let's talk a little bit about this. You see, the ceremonial laws included things like how we dress, how we cut our hair, matters of hygiene, feasts and festivals, uh, worship instructions. And again, these laws, these ceremonial laws, were meant to set God's people apart from the people of the world. This is one way they would look different than the people of the world. In fact, we read in Leviticus 19.27, men were told this, do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Why would God's people be told that? Well, you see, the pagan men would shave the sides of their head and trim their beard for their pagan worldly worship practices. And God didn't want the men of his people to look like the men of the pagan world. In Leviticus 15, 28 through 30, women were told that after their menstrual cycle, they had to wait seven days. And on the eighth day, they had to bring two turtle doves, not three French hens, <laughs> but two turtle doves to the priest to be sacrificed every single month. What a burden, right? Leviticus 5.18 God required everyone who'd sinned to bring a ram to the priest to be sacrificed, to make atonement for them for the wrong they had committed unintentionally, and they will be forgiven. Could you imagine if we all had to show up here on Sunday morning and bring our ram, not our Dodge Ram, Ryan Walker, but an actual ram, to be sacrificed? Could you imagine that? What a burden that would be. Aren't you glad these laws don't apply today? Amen. And then we get to the dietary laws. These laws were not only designed to set God's people apart, but they were here for safety as well. You know, the Food and Drug Administration didn't exist back then. There weren't warning labels and all kinds of rules and laws. So it was important for God's people to stay healthy. And dietary laws is one of the ways that happened. Some animals were considered clean or kosher, while other animals were considered unclean and unacceptable. Here's what, what God said in Leviticus 11, beginning at verse 1. Of all the animals that live on the land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. So that's the two requirements for meat that, that God's people could eat. Then he goes on in verse 4. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, oh, this one hurts. The pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. So no bacon. No pork ribs, no pork sausage, no pulled pork sandwiches. What else? Am I missing anything else? Pork chops. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. How'd I miss that one? Can you imagine that? And then it gets worse. 
You read one down in Leviticus 11, you'll see that if you're living as a Jew in the Old Testament, you can't eat shrimp or crab legs. Oh, man, that hurts, right? If you can't eat crab legs, what's the point of living? But understand, these ceremonial and dietary laws of the Old Testament, they're not binding on us today. They were here for a temporary time. We know this because these kind of laws now point to Jesus in areas of purity and areas of cleanliness. And they were put in place temporarily to set God's people apart from the people of the world until the Messiah came. And once the Messiah came, Jesus, being set apart from other people, would no longer be about ceremony or diet, but it would be about the heart. Amen? These laws weren't meant to be kept long term. They were only meant to last until the Messiah came. And when he came, all people, even the pagan people, had access to God through him and his sacrifice. Wherever the gospel was preached, it was possible for all the people who heard it to get right with God. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish these laws. I came to fulfill these laws. Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. He says that the law was our guardian until, the word until means up to a certain point of time. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. In Colossians 2, 16 through 17, he writes this. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, the dietary laws, or with regard to religious festivals, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day, the ceremonial laws. These laws are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So let me say it again. The dietary, ceremonial laws, they were meant to be temporary until the Messiah came. And after Jesus' death, after his resurrection, those laws were meant to be put behind God's people because God's people would now be known differently in their culture because of their faith in Jesus. Christianity is not about ceremony and diet. Christianity is a religious heart based on a relationship with God through Christ Jesus. Are you thankful for that today? Amen. 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 So let's talk about what we can say about the Old Testament law. Can you think of a law that you didn't know existed until you heard about it or were confronted with it? Sometimes you can be in a jam when that happens, right? But there's all kinds of laws out there we don't know exist, right? For instance, in Louisiana, if you send a pizza to a person unprompted as a surprise, you can be charged with harassment. In Maryland... It is illegal to wear sleeveless shirts to a public park. In Nevada, somebody might be saying, I didn't know there were laws in Nevada. There's a few. In Nevada, it's illegal to sit on a sidewalk. And here in West Virginia, up until 2010, this law was abolished in 2010, but up until 2010, it was illegal to sit in a theater or a place of amusement with a hat or a head covering that could obstruct someone else's view. And if you were asked to remove it, and you wouldn't, it was a misdemeanor punishable by 2 to $10 in a fine. <laughs> How about that? When I go to the movie theater, sometimes I wish that law was still in effect. I would enforce it. 
I always get behind that person. Anybody else that has a big hat, right? But there's laws out there we don't know exist. People unknowingly break the law every day. That's why I have a day job as a lawyer. But you know what? The law exists to explain what sin is. That's a reason for the Old Testament law. Paul said this in Romans 7, 7. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So Old Testament law explains what law is. Secondly, the law exposes sin in us. When you're a child and you get sick, your mom brings the thermometer and hopefully places it under your tongue, right? <laughs> that took a while. Uh, but if you have a fever then you are known to be sick. The thermometer reveals that you're sick. The thermometer doesn't do anything to heal you, but it shows, it points out that you're sick. Remember the COVID test that's been part of our lives these last few years? Remember when you take a COVID test and you sit there anxiously wondering whether or not your life is going to go on as normal or if you have to quarantine for a period of time? And when that test comes back positive, it points out that you're sick. It doesn't do anything to help you. It doesn't cure you, but it exposes the fact that you're sick. That's what the law does, church. We are all sin sick. And some people think that they can cure themselves by doing enough good things and trying to weigh out the bad things, but we know Scripture doesn't teach that. So instead of doubling down on trying to heal ourselves by ourselves, we need a doctor, right? We need the great physician. We need a Savior. And that's the third purpose of the law. The Old Testament law expresses our need for a Savior. And that is why the moral category of Old Testament law is still in effect today. That's why all the moral laws of the Ten Commandments are recorded in the New Testament. And these laws are intended not just to address our outward behavior, but it's about how we think and whether and how our condition of heart stands in relationship to God. In 1922, a guy named Howard Carter discovered the tomb of King Tut. King Tut died in 1324 B.C. So he'd been buried there a long time. 1922, his grave is discovered. And Mr. Carter is giving an interview, and he says, he, he explained what he found. He found a coffin completely overlaid with gold. And inside that coffin was a smaller coffin made of solid gold. And inside that smaller coffin was a golden cloth. And inside that golden cloth was a shriveled old corpse. You see, the entire thing on the outside was beautiful, breathtaking, and priceless. But on the inside, it was full of a dead man's bones. You see, the outer covering of beauty is not as important as the inner man or woman. You see, the Pharisees, they were masters at creating a good-looking exterior where everything looked perfect and they looked righteous, but inside, they were spiritually dead. So as we read the Sermon on the Mount, let's remember this. Jesus is addressing the heart. He's addressing what is on the inside. Because sin starts in the heart. And that is why the moral law of the Old Testament still exists. These moral laws 
reflect the very character and heart of God himself. And these are some hard topics we're going to cover today. We're going to look at the scripture. And we want to consider what God is saying to each of us individually. So here we go. You ready? Here we go. The first topic is murder. Murder starts in the heart. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 21, Jesus says this. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. So when Jesus is talking about the Old Testament topic of murder, I'm sure the Pharisees were saying, Amen, brother, preach on. But Jesus was not just talking about the murder of a man or a woman. He was talking about the murder of malice. Look again at verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You see, Jesus destroys the illusion of righteousness here because the, the Pharisees failed to see their hearts were full of malice. They looked down on everyone who wasn't as righteous or religious or followed the law as well as they did. So in hating the lost, they themselves became lost. It's what's on the inside that counts. And the heart of God is a heart for life, both here and for eternity. Then he moves on to another topic, adultery. Adultery starts in the heart. He says in verse 27, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is serious about this church. He's saying, don't let your stupid lusts ruin your life, ruin your marriage, ruin the lives of everybody around you. What he's saying to us is, avoid putting yourself in vulnerable situations. Seek my help in controlling your sinful urges. Make life-altering changes if necessary. Maybe it means avoiding certain places. Maybe it means avoiding certain people. Maybe it means avoiding certain social media apps. Even if it costs you an eyeball and a hand, Jesus says do whatever's necessary to stay morally upright and faithful to me and your spouse. Because the heart of God, Jesus says, is a heart of faithfulness. And the next topic is divorce. And divorce starts in the heart. 
Verse 31, Jesus says, It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This issue has caused so much hurt and so much division in our lives. But I'll say this, if every heart was right with God, then honoring marriage vows wouldn't be a problem. I don't have all the answers, church, but I do know this. Because of sin in our hearts, everyone's hearts, we have to deal with the fallout of living in a fallen world where relationships and marriages and families fall apart. And the Old Testament book of Malachi tells us God hates this because it hurts. So we have to do the best we can to honor God in the aftermath of sinfulness. We have to do the best we can and repent to God. And as much as possible, make things right with those around us. We have to demonstrate a heart of commitment because the heart of God is a heart of commitment. But none of us are perfect. And we all fail. And that is why we have to be so thankful every day for the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? So then he moves on to the topic of oaths or promises. Who here likes to make promises? Who likes to have promises made to them? No hands on that one either? First service had a few hands for that one. Okay. If we're going to make promises, we got to be careful. Because we better keep them, right? You know, lying starts in the heart. Jesus says in verse 33, Again you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to simply say is yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Lying is a struggle for all of us at one time or another, right? Do you guys know how to tell if a lawyer is lying? When his lips move. That's right. That's right. Now, you know the problem with lawyer jokes is lawyers don't think they're very funny and no one else thinks they're jokes. That wasn't a joke. Why are you laughing? Lying's a struggle. No matter if we want to admit it or not, it's a struggle. And not lying can sometimes be a struggle. You got the fib. You got the little white lie. You got the half-truth or the clever deception or the misleading information. If you've been fishing, you've got the stretching of the truth, the exaggeration. Are you honest about your age? How about your driver's license? You honest about your weight? Are you honest with taxes? Have you ever cheated on a test? Have you ever lied to get out of trouble? Have you ever complimented somebody and didn't mean it? Have you ever kept silent when you should have told the truth? Have you ever made yourself appear better than you really are? Or lied to gain an advantage or misled someone to save face? You see, the ninth commandment prohibits us from giving false testimony against our neighbor, and it commands that we be truthful. And just for a moment, think about how much different this world would look if everyone always told the truth 
all the time. Think about that. There were no lies. No one backed out of deals. Everybody always told the truth. You see, if that were the case, there'd be no need for expensive legal agreements and contracts. Courtrooms would be empty and quiet, and I wouldn't have a day job. And you guys would have to buy my bacon for me and my pork chops. You'd do that, wouldn't you? Good, I appreciate that. You see, if, if everyone told the truth and did what they were supposed to do or said they would do, this world will look different. Our world doesn't look like that. But Jesus says, that's the way I want my followers to look. Jesus is saying here, just be a man or a woman of your word because the heart of God is a heart of integrity. Then he shifts to the topic of retaliation. Revenge starts in the heart. Getting even starts in the heart. Verse 38. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. In 1940, the king of Saudi Arabia was approached by a woman who demanded the death of the man who'd killed her husband. This man was picking dates at the top of a palm tree when he accidentally fell and landed on this woman's husband and killed him. The king tried to persuade this woman from not pursuing her rights, but she insisted. So finally the king said, it is your right to ask for this man's life. But it is my right to decree how he shall die. So here's what we're going to do. You're going to take this man and you're going to tie him to the foot of a palm tree. You're going to climb up to the top and you're going to cast yourself down from that height. And in that way, you will take this man's life the very same way he took your husband's life. The woman thought for a moment and suddenly decided this was not something she wanted to do. Because in following the letter of the law and demanding her right, she just might lose her own life. Jesus requires his followers to act more generously than the letter of the law demands. Out of a relationship with Jesus comes a new relationship with all people that were around. It's a relationship that should come from meekness, from mercy, from grace, from purity of heart. It's a relationship that in us seeks to make peace with the people we're around. A Christian should be concerned with making amends and living a life at peace with everyone. Because we know the heart of God is a heart of forgiveness. Amen? He forgave me. He forgave you. That's his heart. And you see, when I refuse to forgive somebody, when I'm out there concerned with eye for eye and tooth for tooth, guess who's miserable? Me. Not the person that hurt me. Me. You see, it's in doing forgiveness God's way. And this is by no means easy. I, I don't mean to suggest that. It takes work. It takes prayer. It takes God's Holy Spirit working in our lives sometimes. But we need to get to a point as followers of God where we can forgive. Because the heart of God is a heart of forgiveness. And when we decide not to forgive, we're the ones suffering. Thank God for his forgiveness. And then the final topic 
Jesus discusses from the Old Testament law is loving your neighbor because hatred starts in the heart as well. Verse 43, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples by what? By your love. You know, he could have said anything in the world there. He could have said, they'll know you're my disciples by your church attendance. He could have said, you'll know, they'll know that you're my disciples by your Bible knowledge. He could have said, they'll know you're my disciples based on the amount of time you've been with me. But he didn't. He said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love. Church, do we look different than the world in the area of love as God's people? Christ says we better because the heart of God is a heart of love. You see, over and over again in these very difficult topics, Jesus addresses the heart. And he wants us as followers to have a heart that reflects his heart. That is what sets us apart from the world. It's not by ritual. It's not by diet, thank God. But it's by the fruit we bear in God's Holy Spirit. It's because of our attitude and our lifestyle that reflects the heart of God. We live out the heart of God. We put God's heart on display every single day in our marriages, in our parenting, in our relationships, in our jobs, in everything and everywhere God has blessed us to be. We don't look or act like the rest of the world around us because we have Jesus Christ and we belong to him. So what's our challenge today? Our challenge today is very personal. Ask yourself, don't think about anybody else. Ask yourself, how is my heart? Do I have a heart that tries every day to reflect the love of Christ? Or is my heart just as hard as the world around me? We're all sick, church. That's one thing we all have in common. We all struggle with life. We all struggle with sin. We all struggle with doubts. But you know what? We've never been asked to do any of this alone. We have a God who cares, who sent his son to die in our place. We have a spirit dwelling in us that helps us, that guides us if we will listen and follow, that will lead us and help us. So this morning, if you're not a Christian, you're, you're living life in a way you were not designed to live because none of us were designed to live life alone. If you're not a Christian, you've tried it the world's way. Try it God's way. Come to the great physician, the only one who can heal you. And don't worry about getting things right or cleaning things up before you come to Jesus because I'll tell you this, the only way to get things right or clean things up is by coming to Jesus. Amen? If you're not a Christian, try it God's way. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Be baptized into him. Have your sins washed away. Come up out of that water with his Holy Spirit dwelling in you. That spirit that helps you every day. Quit trying to live life alone. It's too hard. And it's not the way we were designed.
If you want to talk about your next steps, we're here to do that this morning. If you're already a baptized believer, partner with us. Help us. Work with us in this community, in this church, to show Christ, that heart of Christ, to a broken world in our community and out there. And if you're here this morning and you have some sort of prayer concern, something on your heart or something that you need help with, we are here to help with that as well. And always, if you got good news, share that with us today. The band's going to come and lead us in a song. I'll be standing right down over here as we sing that song. And if you have a need or want to discuss something, come talk to me. Right now, if you would stand, we're going to pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be here today. We thank you, Lord, that we can open up your word and see the things that you're teaching us. And God, I pray that you be with each heart who's here today. Father, I pray that you help us receive your word wherever we are in our lives right now. And Father, that you help us reflect internally and help us, Father, take the actions in our own lives that we need to take to become the men or women you want us to be. God, I thank you so much for your son and his sacrifice. Father, I thank you that we can have faith in him and have access to you through him. Father, I pray that we don't take that for granted. But I pray, Lord, we're grateful for it every day. And Father, I pray that we show that gratefulness by being forgiving and loving to those out there, Father, who don't know you and those, Father, who wish to cause us harm. We pray for our enemies. We pray for those, Father, who are difficult. Help us respond the way you want us to respond, not the way the world tells us to act. Be with us, Father, in our sin struggles. Help us, God, to turn them over to you, whether it's an addiction or, or whatever it is, Father. Help us to turn those things over to you because, Father, we know you are the great physician and true healing comes from you. God, I pray a special prayer this morning for the Warline family. Be with Jed. Be with his recovery, Father. Give him healing. Give him patience. Father, help them not to be attacked by discouragement, but Lord, help them to know there's a family here that loves them. And Father, help this family surround them with love right now. And we just pray for his healing, that he can be back here real soon. We thank you, God, for all the privileges you give us through your son. Help us, Father, to be good Christian examples. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.